Welcome to Rails with Jason. If you enjoyed today's episode and want more Rails tips and advice, head over to codewithjason.com, where I keep all my Rails articles and videos. Now on to the episode. Hey, today I'm here with Adam Hawkins. Adam teaches teams to build and ship software faster on his podcast, Small Batches. Adam, welcome back to the show. Hi, Jason. Happy to be here again. Always fun to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Um, So even though you've been on the show a number of times, for anybody who this is their first time hearing you, can you tell us about yourself? Well, uh, yeah. Initially, I started my career as a full-stack application developer building, you know, building stuff with Rails and then moved away from building user-facing applications to then focus more on APIs and backend services and then stepped a little bit further backward to building like platforms and infrastructure and developer tooling. And now I work as an SRE at Skillshare and also host the, my podcast, uh, Small Batches where I teach teams to build better software faster. Um, And we'll, of course, link to your podcast in our show notes. For today's topic, this is going to be another one of the How I'd Build It episodes. So for anybody who's not familiar with this thing I've been doing, I've been recording some of my episodes with this theme where I let listeners submit features that they've had to build or features they've built in the past. It could be whatever. And you send me a description of the feature, and then I talk about on the show how I would build it, or me and a guest talk about how we would build it. So, Adam, here's how I think we can approach this. Um, I will read the summary of the feature, and then I'll let you kind of kick it off and give your thoughts, and then maybe I'll share some of my thoughts, and we can go back and forth. So the, the submitter of this feature his name is grant sayer i hope i'm saying that correctly and he's from sydney australia grant uh hello and here's the description creating a sailing club membership system currently redesigning the solution from an earlier version written in rails 3.2 and now re-implementing in rails 6 with tailwind css one of the big feature questions i'm dealing with is the concept of the user profile versus the membership Basically, a member of the club is active based on their financial status, e.g. if they have paid their annual fees, then they can log in and have access. Now, the user profile is basically their account name and I guess would be the state of if they are an active user. Previously, I had built a system with a relationship of user to member as a one-to-one relationship. The user model held the login name and password whilst the member model dealt with the aspects of the sailing club model. In the redesign, thinking of just using member model and having it hold the username and login and an active flag for if active. Maybe the active flag is derived as a named scope 
from the state of the member payments slash financial status. So that's the description. Adam, what do you think? Well, Grant, uh, thank you for your question. Happy to discuss this. So my gut reaction to this was like I prefer the what he described in the previous system, which was having like two different entities to model like the two different aspects of the system. One is the, I guess he called it a user, which is probably like your name, your email and all that. And then member, which is the stuff related to financials or like if you were to consider like a software as a service system, like a plan or something like that. So then the question is, you know, thinking of just using a member model and having to hold the username and login and an active flag for if active. So it may work, but uh, just my kind of my gut reaction to this is if I were to build a system from scratch, I would keep those two things separate, given that the like, um, like what a person can do like in one of these systems when you know, payments are involved. I think it's just a better software architecture principle to separate out the like user profile information versus the information about, say, if they've paid or not, like what's their billing. And typically the, you know, because the features, what they're, or functionalities, what they're able to do is, will eventually be more than just a simple Boolean flag. So, so in that's kind of where I take it. Mm-hmm. In this description, I kind of perceive two questions. Um, one is the question of the user model and the membership model. Should those two things be separate or the same thing? And the other mm-hmm. question has to do with the um, the state. So there was the idea of keeping track of like an active flag if the member is like in good standing or whatever. I want to address that first because there's there's kind of an important data persistence principle which is like don't say things twice there's this there's this quote from i think ef cod he said if something is true saying it twice doesn't make it more true and obviously if you have some fact stored in the database twice then you're susceptible to one instance of that fact being changed so that it no longer agrees with the first fact and now you have inconsistency in your database. So you can imagine a situation where the user pays their membership fee, but then that active flag for some reason doesn't get updated due to a bug or something like that. And now maybe you have somewhere in the database, you have a record that they paid their fee, but then in the active flag, it says false, they're not active. And so now you have disagreement in your database. So. I wouldn't be inclined to have that flag. I would be inclined to just store the fact that they made their payment and then in the code make an inference based on that fact as to whether the member is active or not. What do you think about that, Adam? Um, I think that that's good practice. I think the really the question becomes, like, do you need a particular column in a database to actually worry on this right that's where having it persisted somewhere comes into play like as you mentioned here having a you know a name scope you can imagine writing some code in your rails application that's like user.active.all or you know something like that right um 
But the uh, question, though, is like how to actually infer that someone is active if you need to actually make that query. I find it probably more common that you wouldn't need to actually query the list of all of the, like, say, the active members or active users at one time. Got to make sure I use these uh, words correctly here. Um, but it would be more like, I go to the application, I log in, from there I can retrieve my user record, and then from there check if I have an active membership. Then that's the point where you'd actually, you know, make your uh, join query or, you know, foreign key lookup. And then based off of, like, I think what you said is, you know, storing the fact that they had paid and then saying you can just query on, you know, just do a Boolean on that as opposed to having an entire column uh, in a database. Your point about saying it twice, yes, don't do that. I mean, this really just comes down to database normalization and uh, deduplication, right? Can you say again, Adam, the part about how you think the query would go? Somebody was honking outside my window. I got distracted. Oh, Uh, well, right. So the question becomes how do you need to access the data? So in my mind, you're less, in terms of the normal application flow, it's more likely that you would say, go to you know mysailingclub.com, go to the login page, type in your username or password. At that point, you'd have your like primary key, like email or some way to look up one of the user records. And then from there, once you look up that record, you can do you know a join on the membership, the you know the members table or whatever we call that. And then from there, you know you could check on the value of something on that member model. So that's how you would determine if some user has a you know the state of their member model. On the other, so then the other way is if you need to have a flag on the member model such that you could do a join on the users table and then find all of the users who are active, right? And that's where you'd actually need to have some way in the a database column to do that uh, where condition, right? Okay. So there's a couple things I might imagine going a little bit differently. There's, there's maybe two considerations. One is <laughs> the one we've already mentioned, which is users and memberships are they separate or are they the same model and table and all that stuff that's one thing and then the other question is like how do we actually store the fact that someone paid so i'll Mm. I'll talk about that part the way i think i would be inclined to do it is you know i don't know mechanically how these payments would be made maybe it's manually maybe it's like some kind of automatic stripe recurring billing type thing i imagine the latter um Mm -hmm. but i would be inclined to have a table maybe it's called payments or something like that and it has like a user id and a date and an amount or something like that and Mm -hmm. so when um when i would check to see let's say i wanted to get all the active users i might join the users table against that payments table and say, get me everything where the most recent payment is not more than 30 days ago or something like that. And that mm-hmm. would be all the active users. So that's what I'm imagining for that part. 
Um, I guess let me just pause there. What do you what do you think about that way of storing it? I mean, that seems totally reasonable to me. I mean, it's just sort of a question of <laughs> do you actually have to store the fact that they, like the payments are like have been made in your system, right? Like in this application, where I say if you were using something like Stripe, you might just listen to a webhook coming back from Stripe and then update your code, just record that the fact that, hey, this is my, this user paid, and then here's a reference to their transaction in Stripe. And then if you need to have all of the, the history of all these payments, then you can just query it, you know, in your payment provider, right? It's just a mm-hmm. kind of question in my mind of how much of that do you, would you need to pull into, you know, your system. And just to get into the details of it, were you imagining it maybe on that memberships table, there would be like a column that represents the most most recent payment date or something like that, and that just gets continually updated? Mm, I mean, something like that could work, but it's hard for me to say exactly, because it really depends on what is the logic around uh, have like this active logic you know like is it just the fact that a payment was made and you know in that case you could as you suggest store it as a you know a boolean flag that like in your controller when you handle that then you update this record right or is there some extra uh bookkeeping required because like say if you have to do extra bookkeeping then we're really talking here about you know at least three maybe not at least but you know one table as you as you mentioned for payments and then another table for like users slash member or you know a third a third table where you have users members and payments yeah i can imagine at least two acceptable ways it could work one way is the way that i mentioned where you have a payments table and a record of all the payments another way is if you had a memberships table or users table whatever the table is you could have one single comma one single um column that has the most the date of the most recent payment, and then you could go off that to determine if the user is active. What I'd be wary of doing is having nothing but an active flag, just because that's such a poverty of information. Like if you look at a user and all you see is active false, that doesn't <laughs> tell you why it's false. But if you see that a user is inactive, and look at their date of their most recent payment and see that it's three months ago, then that makes it much clearer why their their account is in the state that it's in. So that would be my thought on on that part. Would you agree with that, or do you have a different thought on that, Adam? No, I think that from the information that we have at the moment, that's a, f- a good assessment. So to, to play devil's advocate to that idea is really... When it comes down to how many features are there and what's the logic here, because you might imagine something that um, like uh, some sort of separate back office or admin type dashboard or, you know, back end for the system where maybe a bookkeeper is coming in and just saying like, OK, this person paid, you know, and flipping the switch on their membership. That might be enough for whatever the um, for the requirements are. And then True. you can imagine like in that case you know, just having some kind of generic like notes field or like history field on a user where people could just record, hey, I paid on this this date or, you know, something something like that. Like that would probably also be completely fine. You know, 
it's hard to say exactly what are the best decisions given the requirements when we're trying to infer as many requirements as we can to give the best advice on how to build this particular solution, right? That's a good point. Yeah, I could imagine if it's like a really lightweight app and you're just trying to, you you don't have that sophisticated of needs for it, then that flag might be okay in that case. Um, Coming back to the two models, two tables idea, users and memberships, I'm to a certain extent I'm with you and to a certain extent I'm not. Um, When an application grows, I often find value in separating the concept of a user account versus a user profile. So like the user account might have everything related to like their login information, their username, password, all that kind of stuff. But then their profile has things like their name and address and all that kind of stuff. Otherwise you end up with a user's table that's like 47 columns long and it's, it's just ridiculous to work with. So I'm with you in that way. Um, but in the same in the same spirit as what you said about like maybe in a really simple case, the active true or false flag would be acceptable. I think maybe just having a user's table might be acceptable too if it's an unsophisticated small application. What do you think about that? I totally agree. You know, it's sort of coming to it from the green, coming coming at it from a greenfield perspective and then fitting what the current requirements are against what your own past experience has been in creating new systems. How The question in my mind is always, say, how much farther ahead do I want to look based off of what I know could be coming compared to what are the current requirements? And how much of that do I have to consider such that I don't architect myself into a box or do something that is you know, initially limiting, even though it would just fit the current requirements, right? So Mm -hmm. like, if you say, okay, I'm building the selling club membership and, or this like selling club membership app, you know, application and yeah, maybe it will last for a year. And once I build it, like the first iteration, there probably won't be anything happening. Then in that case, the simplest thing of say a user's table with maybe three columns, you know, you know, name, email, or whatever, and this active flag could more could totally be fine, right? I mean, this person, you know, maybe it's just them, and they're the only person building it, and they can iterate on it and develop it quickly. And given that entity relationship, that's totally fine, right? But then it's just like, how how big is it going to become? What's the extra logic that might happen? Sort of the the not the red flag, but it's sort of like a yellow flag. It's just kind of a warning thing. And my mind is how more like, what's the logic? If it's always, if it's just like, hey, can I log in or not? You know, then like what you're saying, Jason, of uh, separating out these different entities into like user profile, like user accounts. Like I agree with you generally, like that's what I would prefer to start and then try to justify it in the sense of like, is this too complex for the current requirements? Because I know that if I adopt the model that you're talking about, I will make all of the future growth easier. But you have to assume that that growth will happen, right? It's, sometimes it's easier to start at that position and work, you know, work forward as opposed to creating a, a smaller 
like entity relationship model and then like refactoring it and growing it. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. There's this principle that I kind of use as I, I work by it as I'm coding, which is like, keep in mind the requirements of the future and like make plans for the way things are going to be in the future and, and all that stuff, but only build for the requirements of right now. So I might have a, I might know that six months from now, I'm going to want to have such and such. I don't know. Let's say right now we have a user's table and a payments table and that's all. But let's say that I know that to this application, we're going to want to add, I don't know what's something we want, might want to add to a sailing related inventory of boats or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I might know for an absolute fact that we're going to have the need to keep track of boats in this application, but I'm not going to create a boats table before it's time to actually work on that. Um, and that might seem obvious, but I've definitely worked with people who like, they would do that. Like at the beginning of the project, they'd be like, well, we're going to need a boats table. So I'm going to make that now. Um, and I think that is not a good idea. And I, I'm not sure how to articulate why I don't think that's a good idea, but it's just like everything you're building should be like actually connected to something that's being used right now, I think is is the thing. And nothing should be built speculatively because that's just kind of, um, you might end up with stuff that's not used and so it would just increase your, your waste. I don't know, do you, first of all, Adam, do you like work that way too? And if so, why do you work that way? Well, I, I I avoid speculation in the sense of I'm not going to create something that I know is not going to be used because that's wasteful. And that's just against best practices, really. So like in the example of, say, collapsing these models versus having a slightly more complex model, you know, model entity relationship, they would both work, right? It's just a question of which one of those maybe is easier for you to work with, because given that you know, if you were to start with the uh, situation where you just have like a single table uh, where you have all this information, it would be really easy for you to like write a, to write a migration and split all that up. So really a small enough system. Whereas like, say for myself, where I'm just used to thinking it in terms of how you described where, you know, there's a, there's a user, there's a user account, there's sort of like a separation of these things. You, you could probably say that it might be complex, might be too complex for a small system, but it would meet the requirements, right? So like for me, I'm just more naturally akin to modeling and thinking in that way because that's the scale of the systems that I have worked with that will scale, it will, you know, it will work with a smaller set of requirements, but it might be too much. But for me, it's easier to maintain that sort of, that state in my mind of this, this is sort of how all the systems that I build work like i don't have to change my model based off of every single system that i interact with right it's like snow some sort of commonality between all these things as opposed to trying to read you know trying to solve the problem perhaps more specifically in each in each case do you see what i'm saying i think so and i think something else that warrants mentioning in this 
part of the conversation is the concept of Yagni, uh, Y-A-G-N-I, you ain't going to need it. And I don't know if I'd say that's an identical principle to what we've been talking about, but it's at least very similar, which is basically like, don't build things speculatively, only build what you actually need. Oh, yeah. Well, like one of the other uh, examples of this, something that I think I always consider now is the use case for social login, you know, like login with Google, login with Apple, login with whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Now, a good way to implement that is to follow this principle of separating out the different responsibilities and like you say in your data sto- database or your entities, whatever you want to call it. Um, so you might have a, u- like a, no, we use the term user all over the place now in the conversation, but you know, some, some user record that indicates like an actual person, but then because they could potentially like log in with all these different, um, different providers, then you have one user and many as like how I've called them identities, which map to some connection between these other things. I think this is how was it um, device that gem does it, or there's some, I can't remember the name of the gem. Well, that that would make sense. Yeah. Like in the authentication parlance, I think you would call like Facebook and Google and whatever you you would call those, the identity providers. And so Mm -hmm. it seems like it would make sense to, to name, to name the thing an identity that connects to each of those identity providers. Yeah. Well, in this case, like a user may have many identities. And when you say you could have an identity, which is your Google identity, or your Facebook identity, or perhaps even, you know, your like login credentials identity, some combination of your like email or username and a password, right? So, and then you find your user account or user through one of those identities because they'd be linked through foreign keys. So like you could, you know, put all of that data onto a, you know, add more and more columns to the users table, right? And you end up with a bunch of empty columns and, you know, you can say whatever you want about that with regard to like database normalization, but you know they both work. It's just a question of like which one is easy for easy for you to understand and and scale, right? Like what fits the current what fits the current moment. It's not always like you're not. It's more like I, I get your point about you know you're not going to need it, but it's more like which one of these is more useful in the current moment like i'm totally against the idea of well i'll create all of this code for handling boats but there's no boats in the application yet like that's just a waste and you know don't do that but it's harder to say like on the spectrum of like simple towards more complex software architectures that both fit the current requirements right i i just had a stroke of genius adam um, oh yeah, yeah. It happens to me hundreds of times a day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I realized I, I'm able to articulate why I think this thing that I do. So like, it has to do with cycle time and feedback, which I know is something that you'd like to think about. Okay, so mm-hmm. if I okay, so let's say it's January right now, and my expectation, and if, if we could see into the future, we know that in June we're going to build this boat inventory feature. Mm-hmm. If I wait until June to build the boat inventory feature, like when we actually need it, then the time between when I'm 
building that feature and the time that somebody actually uses it is a very short amount of time. Maybe it's days, maybe it's weeks, hopefully it's days, but short amount of time. If I build that boat feature all the way back in January and it's not used until June, then it's like five months between the time that I've built it and the time that anybody touches it and tests it out and gives feedback. And that's just way too long of a cycle. So I don't think it's that it's waste. I said that it's waste. I don't think that's exactly it, although it it is wasteful. Um, But the main thing I think is that feedback loop. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a great entry point into the decision-making process about how to do certain things, because that's one of why I think those four metrics from accelerate, you know, like lead time, deployment frequency, change failure rate, and mean time to resolve give a really good framework for making these kind of decisions. Because, you know, given that you care about like feedback, then, well, if I make this decision now, I won't have any way to know if I did the right thing or if this feature works for six months. Well, then given that that feedback cycle is too long, perhaps I should wait, right? And then coming back to this question of, well, given that I want to optimize for my ability to you know, ship quickly and iterate quickly, which one of these implementations will allow me to do that? Like for me, uh, for me, like I mentioned, it's easier to just work in the mental model where these things are split because that's just like how I think about it. I don't have to deal with the cognitive load of adopting a different model for this context. Whereas maybe for Grant, it's the other way around where, you know, he's written the application before he's thinking that hmm, maybe this didn't work for some reason. Maybe it was just didn't like grok in my head the right way. And if I do this, it will be easier for me to do all these other things. And I can focus on, you know, building these features and building out the membership system or, you know, whatever it is. Like, and that's a totally fine. And I think the correct decision to, to make. So you can use all of these different like tributaries to making this decision. Um, there's no like right or wrong answer, but there is a different, um, there's different ways to rationalize it and looking at, at it through these different kinds of metrics provide a very useful framework for figuring out how to do so. I have a relevant cautionary tale regarding this. About a, a year or more ago, I don't remember, but where I work, where I am the only developer, we we brought in this other developer who was like a college student, and we basically mm-hmm. just wanted to do the guy a favor and like give him a little bit of work to do, and I don't even, re- I think we must have paid him, I wasn't involved with that, but we just wanted to give him a little job so that he could like feel good about accomplishing something and like put it on his resume and stuff like that. Our goal was not to have him do anything that would necessarily actually be valuable to the business or anything like that. And so he came in, and I think we had a week, and he was like a very green developer. And so, Mm -hmm. of course, the first thing I told him was like, hey, lower your expectations for what we're going to be able to accomplish in a week, because to you, maybe a week sounds like a lot, but uh, trust me, it's it's like nothing, and we're going to be able to do very little. And so what we did was we built this, like, speaking of inventory again, we built an inventory management system uh, using the word system very generally, very generously because it was like a just a single CRUD interface pretty much. 
There's mm-hmm. maybe a little more to it than that. But anyway, the point is that we did a certain amount of work over the course of this week. We didn't really need it for the business at that point in time, although we expected to need it someday. Anyway, the guy did the work. He did a good job, and then we, we gave him a certificate at the end that he could like feel good about, and then we like went our separate ways. Um, then, a few weeks ago, my boss called me, and he's like, hey, do you remember that inventory stuff we did with that guy? Um, what actually like works? What is there? Because now is the time when we like are starting to actually maybe really need it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't remember. I didn't even remember like how to get to it in the UI. And so I went to it and I was like poking around trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. I was looking at the database table trying to figure out like, are these tables actually connected to anything? What about these tables? There's maybe like four or five tables related to inventory. And it really was not clear which of the tables were actually connecting to the feature and which tables were just kind of kind of there. And mm-hmm. that invoked a cost for us. It wasn't a crazy cost, but it was more than nothing where we had to go back and think really hard and try to remember what we did and what we didn't. It would have been so much better. And again, we weren't like trying to be efficient with this. We were just trying to do that guy a favor. Mm-hmm. It would have been way better if we had waited until we actually needed the inventory. Then the cycle time would be short and our memories would be fresh and all that. Yeah. I mean, pretty much. I don't think there's a better way to say it other than it's uh, you know easier to work on something and to build something closer to when you need it because you're more likely to you know build something that you'll actually use. You know that solves your problem as opposed to something that you're you know speculating on. It's like as you mm-hmm. mentioned, I, I love the word speculation because the farther and farther you get away from you know, your users or that potential feedback, the more and more speculation at become speculation it becomes. At least in my experience, the it's almost like all, all the work that we do is know, we, but like in my experience, most of the product development work that I have done has been entirely speculative in the sense that there is no user research. There's no kind of experiments done to prove the utility of, like, will this help the business? Yes or no. It's more like uh, somebody just has an idea in their gut that says, hey, we should do this. It's good. Right. Adam, we, to- we don't we don't have video turned on right now, so you can't see. But there is a tear streaming down my cheek because I feel and share the pain that you have experienced in those kinds of work situations. Because a huge amount of my career has been the same thing. I, I call it digging holes and filling them back in again. Just uh, building building products that ultimately nobody ever uses. It doesn't help the world in any way. Um, maybe I'm getting a little bit too s- cynical, but I've had that same experience. Well, join the club, I guess, or welcome to the <laughs> welcome to the club. You know, I think that our experience is far more common than people would like to admit. But you know, it's would just be easy. I think it would just be a better use of everyone's time if. You know, we started to build like features or changes, whatever you want to call them, closer to when we'd actually be able to validate them. And we would approach that process scientifically, right? Like if I make change X, I expect these metrics might be like signups or usage of a particular feature or, you know, something like that. And then develop the product 
through a set of through a set of incremental experiments that have proven to be true, as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, mm, I want feature X. I'll just make the developers do that. You know, that's yeah. a recipe for disaster. <laughs> yeah, and sadly, it is all too common. Um, and yeah, probably a lot of people listening to this will share our pain in working like that. That's why I really like the job that I have now because I work for a brick and mortar business. And so mm-hmm. there's there's not zero speculative building, but it's very little because like we're not just building a, a product that we're inventing. It's, it's a system that runs a real business. So most of the time we're building for the actual needs that we, that we have right now. Um, I was going to say, oh yeah, okay. So... If we can, for a moment, Adam, get mm-hmm. like, it's almost fractal and we can zoom in a level regarding the, the Yagni thing. So mm-hmm. not only should I not build a boats table for the boats feature that I know we're not going to need for five months, but even when I'm building a feature that that is needed today, like, I don't believe in adding a file and then putting like an empty class is I, I have a vivid memory of working with this this guy one time. He was a really smart guy, but like he had this certain way of coding where he would like open a file and like put the class and then and then like write a little. Maybe he would even like write a function in that class and then move on to a different class and write a little bit of code there without even manually testing the code. And so he was just like leaving this trail of code that was kind of the code was basically a guess. Each piece of code was a guess and it mm-hmm. wasn't verified to actually work. And it drove me nuts. I, Cause I think that's like the same idea. You know, you, you don't have the feedback. If you write some code without verifying that it works either with an automated test or with a manual test, then you're not giving yourself feedback and your whole development process is going to be much less efficient. The way I like to code is I either will write a test before I write a piece of code and that way like there's a feedback loop for it Mm -hmm. or I will write a piece of code and then I make a note to myself that I need to add a test for that particular thing and then once I finish like thinking through it because for some things it's like it's not practical to write the test first, but I still want to like have the discipline to go back immediately after and write the test right after. Um, mm-hmm. But either way, I have that fairly tight feedback loop. And so then I don't end up with this like orphaned code that hasn't been feedbacked in any way. What do you think mm-hmm. about that? Well, you know, you mentioned how you had a tear in your eye and I had a tear <laughs> in my eye when I was more thinking of the idea of writing all this code that didn't even have tests because I was waiting for that. It's like one thing to open up, a, you know, your editor and just fill in a class and then commit it. It's like a whole another thing entirely to like forego the testing of it completely. And that's where I just started to get just absolute like heebie-jeebies on that idea. You know, we talked about it in our like I think was the episode of my po- my podcast on automated testing. It's like, if you don't have automated testing, then what are you doing? I mean, frankly, um, mm. like how, how do you actually work? Not even just you, but if there's a developer in the team who is opening up an editor and committing like effectively little 
code grenades that have not been tested or verified in any way. They're just landmines for the next person to come on and step on unwittingly. That's true. And and, and dear you know, listener, that's just like irres- It's just totally irresponsible. And <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I pretty much agree. But I also want to say, dear listener, if you don't write tests, we mean no offense. We're not judging you. But at the same time, uh, Adam, when I went from being a developer who doesn't write tests for anything, mm-hmm. which was a good, I don't know, 10 year, no, not even, 10 or 15 years of my career, wow, mm-hmm. um, before I started writing tests. And I, I started writing tests maybe about eight years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and when I say 10 or 15 years, that starts at like age 13 for me or something like that so so don't judge me for going so long yeah and plus like back in the 90s like people didn't really write tests that like nobody was really writing tests that much Mm -hmm. as far as i was aware anyway anyway when i went from not writing tests to being somebody who does write tests it was such a difference like i remember my most i remember my last job that i had where i was a non-tester Mm. And it was just such a disaster. Like I did such a bad job and like my boss was like so unhappy with me. And it was like, like I was a good enough programmer to like get by most of the time. But then this application was, was just the requirements were just so that if there were bugs, it was a really, really bad problem. Like just real quick to explain it. It was this, um, score reporting application for sports and so a a high school football coach for example they would go to a game and then it'd be like midnight the game's over they're done with all their other stuff they go to this website and fill out all the scores and it takes them like 30 minutes to fill in all the scores then they click submit and if anything goes wrong they lose everything (laughs) and this was an application that i like inherited um but that doesn't change the fact that I did all my coding with no tests. And so there were bugs, uh, a not insignificant percentage of the time. And people would get really frustrated when they'd spend all this time entering these scores. Then they'd hit submit and they would lose everything. Um, and that job was a, it was just the worst experience for me because like everybody was so mad at me, understandably. And so I contrast that with now, like I can, I have so much more confidence in the work that I do and it's, it's just so much better and I can do more stuff faster and all that. It's just, it's just such a difference. Yeah. You know, and for the listeners out there, it's, if you are, if you've never done automated testing before and you are unfamiliar with the concept, then put all of your other side projects on hold and go learn how to do automated testing at like, codewithjason.com. Yes, today like right now because we've talked about it so many different times on so many different podcasts and we always kind of come back to this idea of just how important automated testing is and I'll beat this drum until my hands are just totally broken because of how important it is to any level of like quality or performance or even, you know, I have no problem saying it, you know, professional software development. Like today in 2020, if you are familiar with the idea of automated testing, you know that it can be done and you're not doing it, then you need to figure out how to do it as number one priority. 
just start just start there you know but like it it i went through the same progression that you mentioned where you know you start is it wasn't the automated testing is not it's changed a lot over the past like 20 years you know there was a point where people just weren't doing automated testing and then they figured out hey if i start doing this thing called automated testing then I can get feedback faster. I can ensure that I don't introduce new regressions into existing code. I can change code faster. You know, pick any positive outcome, and you can probably trace it back to automated testing. You know, but the industry has slowly discovered that over you know x number of years, or perhaps even decades. Yeah, I would go so far as to say, and tell me if you would concur, Adam. Um, doing automated testing it's not just like adding a new skill it's like developing an entirely new way of doing your work totally true i mean it's a it's a and it's actually as a, a worldview you know the state of your the state of how you approach software development the state of like how you write a method or a class or design a system is entirely different in that if you were familiar with automated testing and you weren't, you would produce two entirely different systems with two entirely different like levels of quality and speed. So it's a, it's a practical skill in the sense of like, how do I write a test for, you know, code X, which if you get enough like iterations on that question, you learn to think more about designing whole systems and designing code in such a way that is actually easier to test because testable code is is entirely different than just some like random piece of code and this opens up the ideas of like dependency injection you know you can talk about single responsibility principle i mean you can just like pull on these threads for days and days and days Mm -hmm. they connect to so many different things yeah yeah and i think i said on one of our conversations adam that I actually think it's not possible to have high-quality code without tests, except for the most trivial applications. And that sounds like a really like big claim, but mm-hmm. I think it's actually true because uh, if if you think like you never really get a feature right on the first try, and if you never get a feature right on the first try, you especially don't get an entire code base right on the first try. If you build an application for like two years and you never refactor anything, you're not going to end up with high quality, understandable code. Um, and so in order to have good code that is understandable, you're going to have to perform refactorings. And as your code base grows, those refactorings will have to be increasingly large not necessarily like the total size of the refactoring but like the footprint across the application if that makes sense like Mm -hmm. you might only be tweaking each individual file a few characters worth but you might change a hundred different files in your refactoring because for example you need to change the name of one of your models or something like that Mm -hmm. those types of refactorings are not really practical if you don't have tests because the risk is just too great. At some point, the the amount of risk introduced by a refactoring uh, exceeds the threshold of what's acceptable, and so you just can't do that size of refactoring. And so if you can't do mm-hmm. that, then you can't have good code. So even though it sounds crazy to say, I don't think you can have good code without tests. 
I think it's crazy to say the opposite. <laughs> I mean, you know, if if you if you're making a claim that you just made to me, you're just you know saying the objective reality. If you say, "Oh, well, I can have high quality code without tests," well, then it's like justify yourself, like explain yourself, because this doesn't make any sense. You know, so like coming back to Grant's question about how to you know architect this system, like, well, if you are thinking of having you say one model that has all these things versus multiple models. This is like splitting it out. Well, if you have the test for it, you can refactor it. And then frankly, you know, it doesn't matter what the what the internal architecture is, right? Like you have the test, which represents some kind of spec. You just beat on the code. You change it however you want until the test pass. And if the test pass, then, you know, you're good to go, right? It's like whichever one of those things is, um, is easier for you, I think. It's just what kind of what it yeah. comes down to in my well, mind. It's, it's like that Kent Beck thing, make it work, then make it right, then make it fast. So mm-hmm. you can you can make it work just any old way as long as it satisfies the tests and make them pass. It doesn't matter how good or bad the code is. And then you can go and refactor. And because you have tests covering everything, you know that all your refactoring is valid because everything still works. Pretty much. I mean, and that's just your basic red green refactor loop you know it's what you want to get to irrespective of whatever it is that you're doing right Mm -hmm. totally um okay well we're coming up oh yeah yeah, how did we get no how do we even get here i don't remember we were talking about boats (laughs) and then we ended up talking about testing well every time every time two people start talking about boats they they inevitably end up talking about (laughs) testing it's just the natural flow of the conversation (laughs) um (laughs) Yeah, so uh, we're getting close to the end of the episode here. But I made a prediction, Adam, before you and I talked that even though there maybe wasn't a huge amount of meat on the bone for this particular feature, it would lead us to talk about something. And lo and Mm -hmm. behold, it did. Um, So, Adam, where can people go to, um, even though you mentioned at the beginning, can you say again where people can go to find your podcast and remind us what kind of topics and stuff you talk about? Yeah, my podcast is Small Batches. That's at smallbatches.fm. And what I do on the show is talk through the theory and practices behind high-velocity software delivery. So mainly focus on the theory and light on the practices, like setting a strong philosophical foundation for you know, deciding how to do things. Like when we're talking through this question and you brought up the concept of or talking about, like, should I build this boats? this boast feature and talking about feedback and how does that fit into the decisions that we make on like a day-to-day basis as software engineers or product owners, whatever, you know, this kind of thing. So all of the theory that you need to build better software faster. Nice. Um, And again, we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Jason. Always happy to talk to you.